Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. And not everyone will agree with them. I understand that. And I hope you do too. Thank you. In 2022, I'm on holiday and I get a phone call out of the blue and they said, remember the bombing? I said, well, yeah. They said, well, well, you know, we charged him. I said, no. I said, well, yes, you know, like the trial's underway. It's already started. I, I've missed this completely because I've got up in Queensland and nobody cares. That's a, it's a job from South Australia from 1994. Nobody in the Queensland media really had much interest. So they said, we'd like you to come back and give some evidence. This week is part two and the final of my interview with Gordon Drake. And for those who missed it, allow me to recap who Gordon is. Gordon had a career spanning just over 36 years combined experience with both South Australia Police and Queensland Police with an extensive forensic background, having attended a range of emergency incidents, examining major crime scenes, bombings, profile, serial killings and a myriad of suspicious deaths, organised crime gangs, etc. until he turned 60 and then he had no choice but to retire. That's the rules in Queensland. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. You're 60, you're out of here. Last week, Gordon took us through his intimate involvement 
with the Snowtown murder investigation, an amazing investigation on just so many levels. This week, Gordon talks about his involvement in another high-profile investigation, and that is into the bombing of the National Crime Authority headquarters in South Australia, where a policeman lost his life and a solicitor who was sitting across the desk from that policeman lost an eye and had other really serious health issues until his death only about, I think, maybe 12 months ago. Gordon also talks about the intricate work involved in identifying the offender. It's incredible. Due to the bomb exploding on the 12th floor, obviously emergency service vehicles had flooded the area. And Gordon tells us of the painstaking work of picking out bits of glass and paper from the wheels of a fire truck that was parked under the window that exploded and how all those tiny, minuscule pieces of evidence enabled or assisted in um, identifying the offender. It was just amazing. Uh, Gordon also talks this week about uh, the day that he had a, a breakdown, uh, but within maybe 10 days he was back at work and he never had another incident like it. But he tells of the importance of trusting the professionals and trying what they suggest because that's why he was able to return to work. And of course, he had an understanding and supportive workplace and colleagues who just got it. They just got him and understood what he was going through and he was able to open up and share how he felt and just how important that is. Anyway, look, have a great week. Uh, Enjoy this week uh, and take care. Talk next week. See ya. Some of the the jobs that you've been involved in personally, I would think Snowtown would be, uh, yeah, that that is up there. But also, you're involved in the 1994 NCA, the National Crime Authority bombing at the um, South Australia Police Headquarters, weren't you? Which at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of the first really large scale bombings that Australia had known. Can you tell us a, a bit about that? Yeah, I, well, I guess you know, when you put it like that, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I, I don't say shit, magma. <laughs> I was just going to say, oh, Gordon, yeah. don't worry, I've been called the oh, same yeah. thing. I, I, I have been a little bit, a, a bit a bit like that in my career, which in some ways has been good, but in other ways, of course, not so good. But yes, I, I, I yeah. certainly, because when I joined the, the forensics in South Australia, it was quite a small group of us you know, that were covering the whole state. So pretty much if it happened, you, you got involved at, you know, at a major level, you, you would get involved because there was a, you know, such a small group of us. There was only, I think, six of us when I started um, in, in the Adelaide office of the, of the physical evidence. But yeah, NCA, um, Jeffrey Bowen was a sergeant, I think, from the West Australian Police on secondment to the National Crime Authority at the time. They were investigating, the, the NCA was charged with investigating um, national coordinated crime across, across borders and those sorts of things. Um, and he was in the office, uh, 12th floor of their office in, in Adelaide, and he was having a morning coffee and discussion with the, one of the solicitors that worked for the NCA at the time. Um, and the security guards come in with a, with a package and said, hey, were you expecting a parcel? He said, oh, no, I wasn't. He said, but... And the security guard apparently had said to him, hey, I've, I've scanned it. It's, it's, it's come up. They had those wand scanners. And I believe mm-hmm. the security guard had said to him, hey, I've, I've scanned it. It's come up as something. But he said, you know, I don't know. So, he, so then Jeff has sat there and he's just opened it. And as he's opened it up, um, the, um, Peter Wallace, it was the solicitor sitting across from his uh, opposite side of his desk, 
and uh, this thing's just exploded, bang, and it's, it's it's literally sitting in Jeff Bowen's lap. So he had no chance, and Peter Wallace across the desk has lost an eye. It's blown the windows out, so the 12 floors of, of glass, it's showering across Weymouth Street in, in Adelaide. Pedestrians and people are you know, run, running and wondering what's happened. There's glass is literally raining down on them, and there's smoke issuing from you know, high up in the building. Um, That's a hell of a bomb. Oh, it was a hell of a bomb, yeah. I don't know now how big it was as such. I can't recall, but it was it was a substantial yeah. bomb. And largely a lot of red phosphorus was used, so it was you know, bright flash bang, extra flashy, and um, yeah, red phosphorus stained the walls and the orangey red colour and that sort of stuff as it blew out. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that killed Jeff instantly, um, and it, the Peter Wallace lost his eye from it, um, was uh, quite badly burnt, and you know, so I had some disfigurement. He died only in the last 12 months, I think. Poor man passed away. Um, but he he survived long enough to know that the offender had been charged. He didn't he didn't live to the end of the trial, but he knew that he'd been charged and the trial was going to start. So he, at least he, he died knowing we, that the police had caught someone for it. And who was the offender? Uh, a fellow called Dominic Perret, who was an Italian, uh, Italian man. He was, I believe he was linked with the... Um, with the Australian Mafia at that, at that stage. Uh, and Jeff Bowen had been investigating him, in, I believe, in relation to a, a large cannabis crop in the Northern Territory. So he was, I don't know whether the NCA now, whether they covered Northern Territory from South Australia as well, but Jeff was in South Australia when this happened. So he was in, involved with Perry, uh, Perry and some of his associates with this uh, large drug crop in Northern oh, Territory. Okay. And I yeah. think that was the motivation that... Um, Perry knew that the noose was, you know, the noose was tightening around him, and Jeff Bowen was was the main instigator of it all. So if we get rid of Bowen, then I'll be right. That didn't work, of course, because as in policing, we have other other people that can always pick up the file. So Dominic Perry got jailed eventually for that Northern Territory drug crop, I believe. So he did some time there, and we did a lot of work on it. I went to, I remember getting called out and. Oh, Late at night, I went to a farmhouse and found this enormous storage of guns and stuff under the floorboards of a like a horse shed, or a, mm. a feed shed and things like that. I had all these guns and books about bomb making and that sort of stuff all oh, inside. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we photographed all of those and collected all that stuff. And so he was linked to those things. They had, he had links to a, a gun shop in, in Adelaide as well that um, he was working um, well, not working, but he would frequent there um, and talk to the owner of the, the shop about different various things, ammunition, buying bits and stuff. Most of the stuff, I think, is probably you know, black market obtained. So um, all the work was done. Yeah, we got the file together. We did the statements. Everything was ready to go. Um, the court brief was put together, and then eventually they said, we're not going to proceed. And I remember at the time, this is now, it's like 1994, so I've been in the police less, not, not 10 years Okay. And I guess I'm a little naive at that stage. I'm thinking that's not right. You can't, you cannot blow police up. You can't go around killing police and not face a trial. You know, we've done this stuff. We know he's done it. But they said to me at the time, they said, if we if we proceed with it and we lose, we don't get a second go because of the double jeopardy rules. So I said, you know, I, I understood that. So they said we we're going to wait until we've got a, a rock solid, a better case. And I thought, yeah, right, you know pigs might fly, nothing's going to happen there. So, and that sort of was as far as it went. I, I remained a little bit frustrated, I think, as did most most of the police. But, you know, sometimes the DPP do know what they're talking about. And they said, no, we're going to, we're going to sit there for a bit longer. So so they sat on it. 
and they probably knew that Perry was going to get jailed for the Northern Territory thing. So he went to jail anyway for, I don't know how many years, a number of years. And then out of the, for the drugs. Yeah, for the, for drugs. the, for the drugs. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think he, went, he may have done time in, in Northern Territory, I presume, because that's where the offence was. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I believe he did some time for that. And then out of the blue, oh, 2002, was it? I think. Um, 2022, I'm in uh, 2022. I'm on holiday uh, up at just outside Bundaberg. Uh, no, actually, Harvey Bay. I was at Harvey Bay and um, on holiday for a week. And I got a phone call out of the blue and they said, Do you remember the bombing? I said, Well, yeah. They said, Well, you know, we charged in you. In 1994. Yeah, from 1994. <laughs> and I went, yeah. yeah. And they said, Well, you know, we charged you. I went, No. And they went, oh, yeah. So, you know, like it, the trial's underway. It's already started. I, I've missed this completely because of, you know, up in Queensland, nobody cares. That's a, it's a job from South yeah, Australia yeah. from 1994. Nobody in, in the Queensland media really had much interest. Yeah. So I said, no, I didn't know. So they told us, yeah, we've, we've, we've got him. He got released from jail. We got some more stuff, some more DNA bits and pieces. And the DPP have said, you know, we're going to go with it now. So they said, we'd like you to come back and give some evidence. I went, oh, <laughs> okay. I said. That is amazing. Said, they said, we, we found your notes. I went, really? They said, yeah, we got your notes. I said, I'll see them. We'll, we'll email them up to you or fax them up to you and that sort of thing. I don't know what email it was back then. And I said, okay. Yeah. And I said, well, when? And I said, uh, can you come down to Adelaide uh, next week? And I went, well, yes. I said, because I actually finish here. I leave. I check out here on the Saturday, I think it was. And yeah, so I, yeah. I drove from Harvey Bay back to the Gold Coast, um, found my shoot, got my emails, checked the notes, and I think I was on a plane Sunday afternoon. Uh, no, oh, sorry, Monday. Mon- Monday, Monday. I'm back. Because I had to ring my, my own boss here on the Gold Coast. I said, hey, this weird, this weird thing's just happened to me. This is what's going on. And he went, okay. So he had to make a couple of phone calls, and I got approval from the bosses here to, to, to fly down to give evidence, which is just yeah. a formality, really. So I've, I've left Harvey Bay on the, the Saturday morning, and I'm on a plane flying out of uh, the Gold Coast on Monday morning to Adelaide. I've got to Adelaide just after lunch. Um, suit in hand some rough notes and they've picked me up from the airport and I've gone, oh, we're going to go, um, we'll drop you for your accommodation, but you might be appearing this afternoon. I go, oh, <laughs> shit, okay. <laughs> Nothing like time to prepare, read through your notes and you know, wow. get, get organised. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, cool. Well, I said, I can't go just like I am. I've come down in you know, casual Gold Coast clothes. I said, I need to put yeah. my suit on. So they took me to the hotel. I went up, the quickest change I've ever done, tied but tied probably sideways backwards, I don't know. Got back in the car, <laughs> drove me around the corner of the Supreme Court and went up there and waited and waited and waited. And they went, yes. you're not going to get on today, but we'll get you on tomorrow. Because I'm, I'm booked on a flight, on the, booked on a return home flight on the Tuesday afternoon. So yeah. I said, okay. So anyway, I, they said, you won't get on today after all this. So I hung around till five o'clock and I mean, off we went and that was it. So I went back the following morning and said, you'll get on tomorrow. So I got there in the morning and waited and waited. No, lunchtime break. No, still not, not on. Oh, I don't miss that. Uh, no, that's right. And I thought, oh, here we go. Um, so I, I spent all of, all, all of Tuesday, all bar about the last hour, I think, and they, they sort of rushed it on. I think in the end I had to get they, – they moved my flight to the following day because there was just not enough time for me to get in court, finish my evidence and things. So I stayed the second night. And I think I flew home on the Wednesday in the end they moved my flight because I didn't get on until yeah. relatively late in the afternoon after the lunchtime break. So I got in the box and stayed there. And they, they said uh, that the judge was conscious that I had to fly home to the Gold Coast. So he extended the court. I think they stayed sitting until about 5 five o'clock on the door or quarter past five on that night just to get me fully heard so I didn't have to come back in the morning so I could get on the plane and get home the following day. Another 20, and and how, did you, how did you 
Wow. And how did you go in uh, the box giving evidence? Like, did it all come back to you or were you given a bit of a hard time or how'd you go? Well, it didn't be a hard time. It's it's one of those things where because in some way, again, the, the way that these courts work, because I said, had so much time sitting around waiting, gave me plenty of time to get across my notes and talk yeah, to the other true. detectives and say, well, how did this come about? And get some background on it. And, and they even had all my negatives because back then was, you know, we're talking just you know, in the days we just had film. There was no digital cameras back in 94. Yeah. We weren't using them. So I just had all this big – they gave me this big folder full of envelope, envelope full of um, negatives. So I'm holding them up to the light and looking through some of them and refreshing oh, yeah. them. And they've got hard yep. copies of some of these photos and they've got um, – well, I think most of the hard copy photos had been lost or destroyed by then, uh, and but they had photocopies of a lot of them and stuff. So I was given a booklet of photocopied black and white photos and stuff. So I was able to flick through. So by the time I got in the box, I was pretty much back to back to speed on it. And it's always a classic example when I said to some of the guys and girls I work with up here, you know, there is no. It's one thing I was taught very early on, um, certainly in the forensic world, there is no substitute for good notes. And because I'd made, oh, yeah. I guess, relatively yeah. good notes back in 1994, now these days people would go, "That's you, you write too much." You know, I think no, you don't, because somebody somebody might have picked these notes up down the track when I'm not around and give my evidence mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I've done that for other people. You know, I've had to do that. And if they don't write enough notes, it's very hard. Um, so I had good notes. So I, it all sort of came back pretty readily. And, and they didn't give me too much of a hard time because really just about introducing the photos I'd taken of the guns and the True. booklets of how to make bombs and those sort of things. And that sort of circumstantial stuff that leads to it. But uh, other people, yeah. have, you know, the bomb examiners had been in well before me and spoke about all the, the triggers and what the bomb consisted of and all those sorts of things. So. so what did he get? He got life. Uh, and died only a month or so ago, I believe. Um, oh, oh, well. Uh, yeah, he, he's pretty much been a, a lifetime criminal. Um, he went to jail in yeah, at the end of 2022. I think it was December, I think, by the time he actually got convicted. He was in custody the whole time, remanded in custody. But I think officially the sentence was handed down in 2022. Um, and he, he died six months later in jail. In hospital, but he was he became unwell, and they took him to hospital. So he died, but he, he died a, he died a prisoner. So yeah. Okay, uh, and just going back, do, do you know how they identified him? Uh, wasn't there something about he was he was a this bloke was a bit of a deal because didn't he put his address on the package or wasn't it something as simple as that? There was some, yeah, there was something about that that rings a bell now. I think he may have put um, he may have even written a message on the back of it or something. Um, some sort of veiled, maybe not a veiled threat, but possibly even like a clue or a hint. So whether he didn't expect the bomb to be opened, I don't know, but um, it certainly it, it just went down. But there, there was some sort of personalising thing that left us to that, um, led to him. But, but you were able, I, I believe, um, I've done a bit of research right. with this, and I, I believe that you were able to, with your forensic uh, expertise, you were able to put together uh, that the the sender's address label or something. It was along those lines. Am I right there? Yes, I think there was some yeah, work was put together because I, I remember the, the actual, uh, on the day of the bombing, even the, because, the, because the windows have been blown out, a lot of your evidence has potentially been blown out with that too. And when you talk, yeah. as you probably know, when you're talking uh, parcel bombs in or any sort of bombing, very small things. You have like the, the interior parts of switches, little 
what seemed like just nothing to the average person, a little bit of brass or a little bit of silver metal might be significant. And I remember every fire truck that was trying to leave because you know, two or three fire trucks responded because it's an explosion within the city and a fire, potentially in a high-rise building. So they've, they rolled out a number of fire trucks. And before those fire trucks could leave, most of them had to have their tyres. The tyres were inspected for the make sure nothing was caught up in the tread of the, of the truck tyre that might be relevant. So all these tiny bits were collected, bits of paper, bits of you know, plastic envelope and stuff from within the building and outside as well, as much as we could find, to, to try and put that together. Then somebody would have sat down in the lab and a pair of tweezers and just tried to patch it all together. So, it's painstaking work, that forensically. Yeah. Oh, and this yeah. is why it's so but frustrating when, when you get told, okay, yeah. you've done all this, that's all well and good, but now I'm not going to charge you. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, not surprisingly, uh, in 2009, I think you said, you described to me what I believe was like a meltdown, but and, and not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, as I said, but within a week or so, you'd got yourself back together and you've really never looked back. And I've got to say, Gordon, I really envy people like yourself who can be exposed to such horrific scenes and not be adversely affected like our, our lovely friend Bronwyn. Um, you must have such a, a strong inner strength. Um, but can you tell us or share with us what happened and how you were able to return to work. You've never fallen down again because, to me, this is a positive story for those who have suffered a mental illness and they've lost hope of being able to return to what they loved because you can and you are testament to that. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, thank you for saying those things. That's very kind. Um, but, yes, and it's that's true. I, I, I did. I, I, I caught falling out of the tree but had a meltdown. Um at the time, it was the scariest thing that happened to me. And I'm, I'm talking about you know, being confronted with armed defenders and stuff in the early days as well. Um, yep. This really, really rattled me. I, I was on afternoon shift, so I'd left my home. I've driven my 12 kilometres to the office. I've gone into the office. Normal every day, nothing, nothing else is really going on around me. You know, it's just a regular sort of day. Go in, have a look at what jobs are waiting to be done. Uh, and then you, sort of, you sit there and you plan your shift. Who am I going to see first? Which is the best way to go? Um, you know, the shortest distance between different points. How am I going to order these jobs? And then I remember seeing a couple. I'd seen the 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 night before, I think, and I said, just said to the day she said, "Oh, these jobs didn't get done today. How come?" And one of the guys, with no malice, nothing at all, just a throwaway comment that we would make dozens of times a week. He just said, "Because we knew you'd do it, Gordy." And that that little sentence was what set me off. I thought. And it must have just been, I, I guess, that's exactly how I was feeling at the time. I was yeah. being left with all these jobs, you know, that nobody else wanted to do. Uh, and it was just a straw that broke the camel's back. I started to cry. I got the shakes. And I, I thought, I can't. I hear me from my workmates. I can't be seen like this. So I then walked out of the office. I've got to my car in the car park. And I'm just crying like a baby. I have no control over this. It's just, I've just lost it. I'm just... There's tears. I'm, I'm physically shaking. I thought, oh, what's happened to me? So I've, do, I've driven home. Probably shouldn't have, but I, I thought, I've got to drive home. I can't, I can't be here. So I've got home, and then I've, um, I've rung, and my boss has rung me at home. He said, well, I said, look, I just, I don't know what's going on. I can't, this is just, I can't be there. And I explained him briefly what had happened and started crying again. So then, and he was you know, going to touch base with me. So then I've rung the doctor. Um, my, my GPs and they've said oh we've got no vacancies and I've broken down again 
And this poor woman at the receptionist, bless her, she uh, she obviously realised there was something was very wrong. She said, well, we, "We'll come in." I said, "I can't. I can't come and sit in your waiting room now." She said, "Come in. We'll, you know, you come and wait. We'll, we'll find you a doctor." And I said, "Well, I can't." She said, well, "We'll give you a separate room." So okay, so I've driven down to the doctor's, only five kilometres away. I've gone in. I said, "I'm here," and I've got my sunglasses on because I'm still crying. My eyes are oh. So she's put me into a little room, which was fine. And I'm coming and going from these these emotional bursts. I'm still not sure what's happening to me. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And um, so I've gone in and I've seen the, the GP, a different GP, and he said, look, what's going on? I said, look, I can get um, I can get some psychological support from from work for free, and I can get that probably fairly quickly. So he said to me, okay. He said, I think you're having a bit of a breakdown. He said, you need to see someone. I said, I'll only, I will only let you leave this office now if you promise me you will take this up with your with your work. And I said, I will do that. So. But someone got got home, um, work, and my boss had been in touch with the, the local HSO at the time, human support officer, who's a psychologist, and she's rung me, said, what's going on? I said, apparently this is what's happened. Okay, so we'll put you on the, the IT, uh, the IDP program, the um, intervention program. I said, okay. So within a couple of days, I was at um, at then one of the nominated psychologists. He did some tests and things, and asked me some questions. We had a bit of a chat over an hour or so. And he said, right, he said, he said, straight up, he said, you've got PTSD. He said, you've got some mild Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Depression. He said, you need, you know, we need to do some work with you. I went, oh, okay, that's, that's not what I wanted to hear ideally, but at least it explained a few things that were going on. And um, so then I went, went back home and uh, they got reported back to the, to the police and I thought, this is it. You know, my career could be finished. Uh, you know, I've, seen, I've seen and heard these things happen before. You're done for. Yeah. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to leave my career. Weird as it is, I, I just wanted to stay on. So, one of the other fellas had had, had a similar episode um, some months, well, yeah, months or a year before me, and he'd given me the details of his psychologist. And so I'd rung them and said, look, this is what's happened. I need to, to talk to someone. And she did a thing called EMDR, 
which I think stands for Eye Movement uh, Desensitisation and Reprogramming. Yes. Yep. And it yep. sounded like absolute hocus-pocus bullshit. I, thought, I was just going to yeah. say, oh, yes. Yeah, I thought, okay. But, and I remember my workmate had said the same thing, but he said, he said, I did it anyway. He said, because, you know, what have I got to lose? I was with the same mindset. So I went down and saw yep. her. I think I had a couple, I had a session with her. And then eventually, by the time, sort of the, by the, time the end of the week had come, I'd, I'd had, the, I think, five or six days off. Uh, plus, I think it was a couple of other days off on there, like rested days off anyway. So I think I only had three or four rostered shifts I was supposed to work before this happened. So mm. um, I've gone back to work. I'm still feeling a bit delicate. The boss has been very supportive, and that was the important thing. And all my colleagues were yeah. going, hey, you're all right. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. But, you know, I said, just just really weird. And I started, I openly talk about this because this could be, this can happen to anybody. I didn't think it would happen to me. You know, you think you're, you're bulletproof and, you know, I'm, a, well, I'm six foot two, two and a half, nearly six foot three, a hundred or a kilo of bloke. Um, mm. yeah, this stuff doesn't happen. This is, you know, this happens to girls. You know, they're, they're all emotional. <laughs> so, not all. No, not all. Careful, but, yeah, well, that's true, but, yeah, it's the sort of thing you, yeah, you associate more with, you know, the thing. Of course, and, you of course yeah, yeah. and I'm now a big fan. If there's any blokes listening to this, don't be afraid to cry. Man, I, I, I've, I, I cry more frequently since this happened. Uh, whether it's because I'm permanently damaged, I don't know. It's probably maybe I've just got to the use of the fact that now I accept that you can. Real, real men can cry, and not real men. It's okay. It's okay not to be okay. But because yeah, I had support yeah. from the from my colleagues and my, my bosses, um, I came back to work. I wasn't on light duties as such, but I think they were just a bit eggshell you know, walking around me for a little bit, yeah. just a bit careful. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the guy who made the comment, he said, no, I'm really, I said, mate, it's not your fault. You probably could have said anything to me. You could have, could have told me it was a can of spaghetti and I would have just set me off. It was just that particular moment it just happened to be. Um, so it's, it's, it's not your, not, nothing he did um, as such. It's just one of those things. It could have been anybody saying it. So I, I went back to work. I carried on and I continued on with seeing the psychologist. So I think I had sessions certainly fortnightly in the early days, a couple of those. Um, and eventually she nutted down. She she doesn't do EMDR straight up. I think we had two or three sessions, and she said, "I think we, I think I know where we're going with this now." So she said, "I want to do this EMDR." I went, "Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Weave your hocus yep. pocus on me." And it's like a hypnotism that type airy, thing. Fa- yeah. That airy, fairy, fluffy yeah, stuff. Hit, hit me up with this. Come on. Yeah. So she did it. I was crying again, and bits and pieces happened. I, you leave there, and you're mentally exhausted. And it only takes literally takes probably less than 10 minutes from woe to go, the whole EMDR yes. thing. Yep. This is not a long yep. process. Um, it's, it's just a, a snapshot in time of the one-hour session you're having with your psychologist. So she's done this to me, and I've left there, and I'm thinking, I feel terrible. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. I'm crying again. You know, this isn't working. Uh, and then 24 hours later, I've woken up, and I'm feeling so much better. And I thought, I think this has actually worked. Um, so I, get did a, I think mm-hmm. we had a few more sessions, and I think I may have another EMDR thing later on. Um, but I technically consider myself cured because of EMDR and having you know, a support network and stuff like that. So yeah. um, don't be afraid to, to – when you do break, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. Um, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Uh, the service was very supportive, and I think most police services these days are. Um, I, I think if it happened in South Australia early in my career, it would have been a different story. But we're talking you know, 2020 odd now. It's you know, we're, we're into the 2020, 22s and threes. Um, we're in a different era. People understand this much better. 
Um, and I didn't want it to end my career. I was hell-bent. I didn't want I thought, if I have to move, where am I going to go? You know, where am I going to move within the police? Um, but that was never even mentioned. They just said, well, if you want to stay, you can, but we, you know, we need you to be well. So I, I sort of got well and, and stayed on there. And then, um, yeah, it was I've, I've never looked back. It's been great. So, But I, I think that the... Uh, another important message there is that, and you were probably getting to that, but you still see a psych now, don't you? Yeah, every once in a while. I'm probably, I'm probably yeah. about due. I ran about, I think, annually at 18 months thereabouts, so just as a bit of a checkup. Because yeah. since this has happened to me, I remember I used to, like many people I, I know, we used to laugh at these American TV shows where everyone was seeing a therapist, you know, their dog was seeing a therapist or whatnot. <laughs> But you know, so, and I was seeing my therapist. It was a stand, it was simply like a running, almost a, a running joke within a lot of American, certainly sitcoms and stuff. Oh, my therapist tells me this. Um, I used to think it was the, that was a, a stupid thing to be doing. But I now, I'm a, I now a believer that we need to be doing checkups on ourselves, our mental health, just as we go to the doctor and we say, look, you know, if we have a little sore, an injury on our arm or a leg or whatever we want, a visible injury, and it's not healing itself, We'll go to a doctor and we'll seek some professional advice. So what's going on here? But we don't seem to have the same attitude with our brain, <clears throat> with our, our emotional health. Um, we might be feeling a little bit weird. Um, and I think, oh, maybe I'm not traveling. Well, that's, that's upset me a bit. Because what I did learn was that part of the reason that um, maybe I've, I've had such a long career in this, in this area is that I, I was also suffering from emotional numbing, which apparently is a recognized condition where I was putting my my big boy shield up when I got to work because of all the things you see and you deal with, you get this emotional sort of separation. So you, you can function and not focus on you know, too many emotional things. So there I was being very stoic and, and hard faced, um, still with empathy of course, but basically not letting these things affect me. But the problem with that is when you do it every day, all day, when you get home, you can fall into the trap of not letting that down. And that's where I'd got to. So I was being equally as sort of unemotional, detached at home as I was when I was at work. And that, I have no doubt, that contributed in some way um, to my breakdown of my first marriage. Um, it may be probably less present than those sorts of things. Um, there's a number of other, other issues that went on with that. But, and that's another thing that, you know, you didn't, I didn't see that coming on, that being the divorce, just all the, the separation and, the, and things. But that's, that's a whole other story. And I won't yeah. bag my ex-wife <laughs> over that. Um, but it's, <laughs> I, I have to acknowledge, and people in our job in, in policing, you know, we see in, even first response of any description, ambulance, fire brigade, all first responders, you will see and see, hear, and do things that no human necessarily should ever have to do and see and smell and, and touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard. Allow yourself to accept that what you do is not normal in many, many respects, and it will affect you. If it doesn't affect you, there's probably something wrong with you. So when you start going to jobs and not getting affected, that's probably when you need to be yeah. talking to a psychologist and say, hey, yeah. I'm going to these jobs. I don't, I don't feel upset about this terrible tragedy. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe that means there's something wrong. Maybe it means you've got this hard shield up and you need to break it down. Um, and don't let it continue on until it finally breaks you. But if it does break you, if you want to, if you want to get better, I believe you. I truly believe you can if you get the right help. And it's, it's the secret is getting the right help. 
I couldn't agree more. In fact, I've said many times that uh, so many people that I know have been, let's say, to a psych or a doctor and and they feel like the doctor or the psych just don't get it. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, if you don't feel comfortable with them, you've just got to keep going because when you find somebody that you feel gets it, it makes a whole world of difference where you feel comfortable and you feel like, yeah, they understand you because um, there's no point going to someone that you don't respect or you don't like or Mm. you've just got to keep going. But I think the important part of what you're saying there, Gordon, is that you still, whether it be once a year or once every two years, it doesn't matter, but you still get, you know, you check in every Mm. now and then. And I I know I heard a great story not all that long ago about a number of uh, recruits out at the academy here in Victoria that are now, rather than wait until you and I Uh, well, I fell over big time and you did, but you were able to get back. But rather than get to the point where, say, I got to where I couldn't come back, Mm -hmm. what the recruits are doing now is they are going to a psych before they fall over. So they are getting prepared or as much as you can for what we see and what we do. And as you said, what we touch, what we smell, you can't ever forget those or... uh, um, um, you can't ignore them, that they're always there. Mm. And so to get some help went before all these uh, um, um, incidents start um, uh, what's building up, oh, I think I think it's a great message. Mm. I really do. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that the recruits are doing that. That's a good thing. I think we need, we need, yeah. we need more people to be open and talk about this stuff. You know, yeah. you know, men yeah. in particular are terrible at looking after ourselves, you know, the you know, we, we don't look after our health the way we should. We don't talk about these things, whereas I I openly talk about stuff. I, it, whilst I've had a, a great career, a long career, I've also had, you know, some health challenges. I've had a brain tumour removed. I've had some prostate work done, um, mm. all fairly recent years. But I openly talk about that stuff to guys, and you think, oh, they go, oh, it's too much information. Well, okay, I'll stop talking. But with, with blokes in particular, I say, well, you, know, you need to know about these things. And then... After a, a few days later, you get a couple of them come up individually and go, hey, when you're talking about that, you know, going to the toilet, you know, that, that weeing issue, how did that start? And before you know it, I'd gone and had this, you know, had a chat, chat with a urologist and stuff and openly told Bill I had the day off because I had to go and see this specialist. And, um, yeah. and then they were saying, who did you see? And then within about three or four days, two more, at least two more blokes in the office have gone, I think I'm going to do the same thing because I'm starting to get some of those early symptoms. And they'll be a bit, they're a bit younger than me, but most of the guys I work with are sort of getting into their 50s. And I said, well, you need to go and do these things. So we have these open sort of discussions, and I think that's a good thing. We need more of that. Um, and, and men of all, in all workplaces in particular, need to start talking about this stuff. You know, there's no shame in that. Girls, you, you ladies are talking about your, your bits quite freely and openly as far as I understand it. We do. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. We do. In fact, I always remember somebody saying it might have been a friend of um, mine, Keith Banks. He was an undercover cop. Mm -hmm. And he said he's really jealous of the way women who hardly know one another can actually open up and talk about, I don't know, trouble with menstruating or pr- problems with, um, uh, I don't know, what, whatever it be. But he said he really uh, envies 
the way women can be so open about their uh, I mean, we're generalising here, yeah. but I think it's great that men are starting to be more comfortable, let's say, in talking about their emotions because, as you say, for some, you know, I mean, it goes back way, mm. way back that it was something that men didn't talk about because they, as you say, you had to put on that shield, um, you know, I'm the big strong man, I don't cry, I don't, you know. Yeah. Real men don't <laughs> cry and all those sort of rubbish yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're real, right. Real men do cry when you need to and you should. It's, it's a good outcome. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, Gordon, in closing up, I had so many questions to ask you, but, oh, my goodness, um, I don't want you to have to go to the psych tomorrow because um, I've, I've bled you dry. But what I would like to finish on is um, putting Snowtown and the NCA bombing aside, if we could, yeah. what's, what's the most challenging crime scene or emergency situation that you've been involved in? Oh, wow. That's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, um, oh, all of them, I mean, all of my scenes, they all vary, but probably the, um, since I've been on the Gold Coast, some of the, the things you you get here quite frequently, we you, know, you work on a, a seaside suburb, so you've got, um, you've got tides coming up on beaches and things, and we had a job uh, going back... Uh, a couple of years ago now, um, the, a, a little baby, so a nine-month-old baby girl, uh, was found mm. washed up on the beach at um, just in Surface Paradise one evening mm. during schoolies week. So I was on night shift with one of my workmates. We the, we normally work only as uh, one up, but because of schoolies, we often have we always have two people working because we need to go in pairs because schoolies all want to look over your shoulder. They want to know what you're doing, so one of us basically just runs crowd control and interference and can help get the job done a bit quicker. So we turned up on the beach for this nine-month-old baby. And we thought, How is this nine-month-old baby just wearing a nappy turned up on the beach? You know, how does this happen? And um, we thought I said, wandered from a building or something. I think well, she old enough to wander from a building. Um, and in the end, that turned out to be a murder. But I, I remember losing some sleep over that, thinking, where's this baby come from? And, mm. and then they charged the fellow. It was New South Wales. They, they, I believe they found some CCTV footage that showed him throwing the child in, in Tweed Heads. And she's supposed to have drifted all the way up from Tweed Heads north up to Surface Paradise. Um, how far is how far is that? Oh, that's got to be, that's got to be twenty k's probably in the water. Oh, gee. And I'm, okay. I looked at this poor little baby, and I thought there is no way the injuries and stuff. Like this this child didn't look like she'd been in the water anywhere near that amount of days. Um, and mm-hmm. I still this to this day, I still think it's more likely that um, they found that they were living. The, both the, the the mother and the father were living rough, um, for, you know, homeless people. And they were they had a little camp at Broadbeach, and I still think, given the, the nature of the injuries or lack of injuries and the general condition of the of the body, I think that she's more likely she's gone in the water at Broadbeach and drifted further up, only you know, a kilometre or so further north, and then washed up there. But I can't argue if the New South Wales Police have got CCTV of him you know, pushing her in. But it's, it was really hard for me to get my head around that to, for a while. I think this child's supposed to have been in the water that length of time for a whole day. And it's not, it didn't strike me as having, you know, didn't have all the usual bits from drowning and you know, tumblings and no fish activity yeah. and things like that you often get, which is probably good because of poor little, poor little kitty. But yeah, so she's, yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, that, that's a tough one. 
There's, I was going to say there's something, I say it a lot, but it's true. Uh, there's something, well, of course, you know, but any job involving a little baby or a, mm. a little child, anyone is terrible. But, you know, kids, are, it tugs at your heartstrings and it's something you never, ever, ever forget. No, that's right. I mean, I've got jobs. I mean, another one that just springs to mind that it doesn't haunt me, but one I can still visualise yeah. is um, course, yeah. going back before I even joined the police. And when I was a volunteer, you know, volunteer in the fire service, we used to do a lot of accident rescues and stuff. And I remember going out to the back of Gawler Belt in, in, in Adelaide and uh, a car full of, a little red car it was, I, mean, my, I want to say a laser or thereabouts, um, had left the road, rolled onto its roof and these people were trapped in there and there's these young um, sort of teenagers, there's 17, 18, 16, 15. They literally were dying in the arms of some of our, some of our firefighters. We had them in, inside the car and then they, you know, they're crying. A couple of them had died straight up. The car was, I think, almost overloaded. But, I mean, we, we were trying to right the car. We were trying to stabilise them. Ambulance people were coming. Um, and, yeah, they, some of them literally died in our arms. And you think, just such a waste of life. And, um, but it, it's, yeah. They're, they're, so they're, they're all the challenging scenes you get, I guess, in the, in the police. All the good things that you know, people should join for. Yeah. <laughs> and probably a lot of the reasons that they're not joining anywhere. Policing. I was going to say, I think we've put everyone yeah. off that was thinking of yeah. joining. Re- re- yeah, recruiting didn't ring me up and say, you can come and get a job with us. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, all, all police services are struggling to recruit people, I think, maybe because these sorts of things that happen to us and the sorts of things we see and do, are perhaps more commonly known now, and the average person says, "Well, this is it. You know, I don't want to do that." And of course, you know, police have become punching bags a bit now. There seems to be no respect for police anywhere. Um, no, no. Well, it's certainly dwindling. I mean, when in my intro, when I was talking about, and and you and I have discussed this off air, mm. like we couldn't deal with those, pardon me, but those smart asses driving past doing wheelies and it's just like you watch them because you're not allowed to chase them, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. And I just think uh, I know uh, policing has improved in a lot of ways, but I also think it's gone, uh, we don't have the respect that we did anymore, uh, that we used to, but then I feel sometimes that that's um, in the community as well, that it's not just police that don't have respect. I think, you know, a lot of parents don't aren't respected by their kids, a lot of teachers, a lot of fire. Oh, it just goes on and on. Oh, yeah. um, Gordon, I've got to say um, thank you um, for, I just think to myself, what a waste that somebody like yourself isn't still because of this ridiculous rule, like, and all that expertise and, and you know, you're looking for, for employment. It just seems Yes, so I, I, I'm, I'm open to offers. If anyone's listening or wants to give me a job, uh, <laughs> when, I come, when I come back in three weeks' time from a holiday, I'll be, I'll be looking for, I should be applying for jobs in some way. So uh, all, of my, all yeah. of my knowledge and skills can go to whoever wants them. Yeah. Oh, gee, I hope somebody's out there that, uh, that <laughs> does um, give me, me a ring because I'll put them on no, to you. Right. Um, no, I'll, no, I'll, but, I'll, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Anybody. And if there's any blokes out there who are listening who want to know about mental health, feel free to contact me. You know, we'll have a chat about that and, or we'll have, um, you know, if your waterworks is not quite right and you're a bloke, give me a call. We can talk about those things too. 
Oh, that's great. No, but uh, thanks, you know, for what you've achieved in your career for helping in convicting some people. Seriously, when I think about some of the horrendous crimes that you've assisted in, but it does all make us feel a little bit safer. But also for the sacrifices that you made in many in many ways. And, you know, again, um, the amount of police and emergency services that must go home and just be uh, full of, you know, the grief they've seen and the trauma and the sadness. No wonder there's so many marriages that collapse. That's that's a, a huge load for anyone uh, to deal with. But I do hope you have some time to smell the roses and trust me, opportunities will come out of nowhere. And uh, just take them, go with them. Um, because you never know where they'll lead. Someone with your expertise and knowledge won't be doing gardening or playing a few <laughs> rounds of golf for very long or good. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you, Earl. It's very lovely. I, I, I hope you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and smell the roses and drink some wine in Margaret River soon. So <laughs> eight days, my wife oh, tells me. She said, we've got eight oh, days before I'm we leave. <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. Oh, Margaret River, you know, just... Um, uh, yeah, well, I've never <laughs> been, so the whole thing's going to be new to me. I've never been west of Sejuna, so... Um, the whole Western Australian experience will be new to me. So look out, Western Australia, we're coming. <laughs> well, look, I'll just leave you with this, Gordon. When I was about uh, 18, I started travelling around Australia in a combi with a couple of girlfriends. I had a combi and another girlfriend had a high ace. And so, oh, talk about, we just had a ball. Anyway, Margaret River has a very, very special place in my heart <laughs> because we uh, arrived at um uh, Margaret River, and we met. There was uh, five of us girls, and we met five guys travelling around Australia in a bus. Right. And I can, and I can tell you some of the best days of my life. Okay. Oh <laughs> wow. Anyway, I'll leave you with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a visual of that already. <laughs> Thanks, Gordon. Great, to, great to chat. Pleasure. Have a good holiday. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression. I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Thanks.